This is the Swift by Sundell podcast, the show that answers your questions about Swift development. Hi, everybody, and welcome back for episode number 28 of this podcast. I'm your host, John Sundell, and I'm joined by another awesome guest. He is the creator and CEO of PSPDF Kit. He likes pushing UI kits to its very limits, and he's a great conference speaker. It's Peter Steinberger. Welcome to the show, Peter. Hello, everyone. Thanks, John, for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. So I remember when I got started speaking at conferences, which was about two and a half, three years ago, something like that. And people were telling me that once upon a time, Peter Steinberger was always speaking at conferences, but now he's like focusing on his company. But now you've done like a big kind of comeback speaking at a lot of conferences. So how does it feel to be back speaking at conferences and doing talks? It always feels great. Um, it's amazing to to share, to to get to know people, um, to explore new ideas. Every time you, you make a a talk, it pushes me to like go deeper than I would normally do and like, you know, prepare the topic in a different way. So I also learned something with doing that. And yeah, uh, it takes up a lot of time. That's why I didn't do it for a little bit, but now the company has grown a little bit and it's easier again to, to find time for those things. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it takes a lot of time and uh, I think sometimes longer than people might think because, you know, you're only doing a talk, which is maybe 30 minutes or 40 minutes, but there's a lot of preparation that goes into it. Yeah, and I already feel I'm doing shortcuts because I use Dexet and just write my slides in Markdown and don't put that much effort into it. Um, when I compare this to the slides you did for your UI testing talk, there was like a lot of custom animations and, and just polish, which I, I just don't have the time to. And even without, even with those shortcuts, it's, uh, it's just a lot of work. Yeah. Well, thank you for, uh, you know, for, for saying that. And, uh, I really like for me, it's, I, I really like doing these slides, you know, I love putting together the animations and, you know, I, I really <laughs> like, it's, it's part of the preparing for conferences that I really, really like a lot. And I think that's why I spend so much time on it, maybe more time than I actually should. <laughs> You're also doing a lot more conferences. Like, how many has it been this year? 20? Oh, not yet, 20. <laughs> but I think I'm going to end up of, with like maybe 15 for the whole year. Wow. So it's, uh, it's quite a lot. But yeah, same for, same for me as for you. Like, I really enjoy just like, you know, talking to a lot of people, spending time with other developers, um, and just like hearing so many new ideas and also being able to share uh, some of my own ideas in kind of a different kind of context than with the blog and now with this podcast and stuff like that. So uh, during your kind of, um, what should we call it, um, absence from the from conferences, you were busy building your company. And it's a really, really impressive uh, company that you've built, I must say. And the journey behind it, I think, is also very interesting. So your company is called PSPDF Kit. And uh, for us uh, old timers who have been around for a while, you know, we kind of understand why it's named the way it's named. But for the people who are new to kind of the community and they're maybe only been working with Swift, uh, tell us, Peter, why is it called PSPDF Kit? 
Yeah, that's actually that's a fair point. Like now we get to this stage where where there's people who don't know anymore why namespaces exist, and then they run into these problems. I think less so with Swift three and the Objective C export changes, but still, um, I just needed a a prefix that wasn't taken yet, and Apple kind of claimed all the two letter prefixes, and then. I didn't come up with a good three-letter prefix. If I just use PDF, that's also too generic. And actually, Apple has classes where they use PDF documents. So I couldn't take that as well. And my my old-time prefix was PS for Peter Steinberger. So I just connected it and figured five letters are definitely unique enough. So I came up with PSPDF. And kit is the way you say SDK in iOS land. So that's how PSPDF kit came to be and to be quite fair it's it's a horrible name <laughs> for 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 a company like the domain costs alone for all the spelling mistakes that i registered is is, is quite intense um <laughs> so you have like a lot of different variants registered as well oh we do we do um but ultimately it never hurt the company it's it's very unique it shows what we do even now it it, it tends to be a little limited again because now we also like work with images, which are not really PDF, and it's still a PDF in the name. Mm-hmm, yeah, but yeah, that's just a, I guess, an artifact of history, and now it's a little hard to change. Yeah, but it's also kind of charming in a way, right? And uh, also, I think that now you have built up this kind of image in the community, and a lot of people know about PSPDF Kit. So I guess there's also a lot of brand value in that name, even though you know. It might seem like a little bit of a you know historical kind of thing. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It definitely has some some old school charm. Yeah, I'm not sure if I actually would want it to change. It's yeah. No, after a while, you get kind of used to the name, right? And I mean, for you, I guess also building this whole thing up from the ground up must be like a lot of personal emotional attachment to it. Oh yeah, it's. I mean, it's basically my life. I'm I'm 32 right now. I'm doing this now for eight years yeah wow so it's 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 most of my professional life so how did this whole journey get started what's kind of the origin story of PSPDF kit I actually started with my own app that was the very first time I did iOS and I still remember how I downloaded Xcode 3 and I dragged it to the application folder I clicked on it and then this editor opened and I was like waiting for the IDE to load and eventually I figured out oh, I guess that's it you know, <laughs> coming from coming from Windows development and Visual Studio and ReSharper and like all these amazing tools that were there 10 years ago and then you come to Xcode 3 and it's just like that's it are you, are you kidding me <laughs> but but given that like it it's amazing what you can do and how quickly you can you can make amazing apps um, much faster to be honest than than with windows at least with the, the default stuff that they give you and then xcode 4 came along and actually slowly transformed into being an, a good uh, ide yeah totally and i was at wwdc 2010 that was my, my first uh, apple conference and really really got me into this hype of like wow we like building apps this is the most amazing thing i'm like my own master even though you never really are because you always work with clients mm-hmm. um and then the following year i got a job offer literally at a party at 2 a.m in san francisco in a bar and i knew that 
of course I have to take that. It's like, this is, this is my opportunity, right? I'm, I'm going to Silicon Valley. I'll, I'll work there. I'll work with an amazing team. I knew some of the people that were working there already. So I was really looking forward to that. Uh-huh. And, and we figured out, oh, well, the visa will not be, will not be a problem. That'll maybe take him, that'll take a month or two. So I stopped doing all the freelance work. I made a few clients really sad because they were kind of like, planning already and it was about as hard to get ios developers back then as it is now uh-huh yeah so so uh, but my network was even smaller so i couldn't even refer them someone else they were just like a little, little rough and then the visa took longer than we expected so instead of two months it took over nine months and eventually I did a lot of open source. That was kind of the time where I did AF networking, if people still remember that one. Oh yeah, it was a good classic. <laughs> yeah, I learned I learned a lot while working uh, and submitting pull requests there. But yeah, eventually you get bored with just doing open source and I did I did help out a friend and eventually they had a the task where they needed um they needed to build a, a magazine app that shows magazines, which are PDF. And yeah. They figured out that, oh, this is actually hard. You know, like this was iPad 1, uh-huh. where your application had 64 megabyte of RAM. And you basically never got all of the 64 megabyte. The system would usually chat some you once you reached 40 or 50. So you had to be really peculiar. What do you do on what threads? And you couldn't really hold more than two, three, four images. Um and rendering also takes a not really definable amount of memory. It always depends on the content. So this was actually fairly tricky to to get right and get fast. And you had to use memory caching, disk caching. And I spent a lot of time on that. And then they figured out that it's hard. And I was like, no kidding, it's hard. <laughs> I did that. <laughs> Been there, done that. Yeah. Uh, and they're like, yeah, can we have can we have your code? So I was like, sure, if you pay for it. And we eventually came to an agreement. I refactored it and uh, improved it. And that where PSPDF kit was born, I guess. This, this first source code drop. That is really, really fascinating. And it's really cool also how it came out of like this, just a project that had like a, this concrete problem that, hey, we need to render PDF under these like constraints. And you realize this is a problem that probably a lot of other companies have, right? And then you could kind of go from there. Yeah, I was at the time, I was inspired by a few people that that also sold components. It's it's not something that's very usual on iOS. I think most people on iOS just do open source. It's much more of a thing on Windows. But there were a few projects that still are. And that basically gave me the confidence to just try it. And yeah. I put up this website. I asked on Twitter, hey, what's what's a service where I can like do credit card payments? And uh, <laughs> somebody recommended me a, a good one. And I set it up. It took like another half a day. And then I just like tweeted, hey, I, I made this thing. Is, is it useful to anybody? And I actually sold a few copies in the first week. Yeah, that's amazing. That was, that was amazing. But that was just the start. Um, you know, like... People bought it and then like the emails came in. It's like, hey, it doesn't do this. <laughs> People were asking about features I didn't knew existed. But it was like it, that cycle, I feel like it, it didn't really change. Like it's like eight years later, we still have that cycle. Yeah. It's, the features are like a little more 
detailed, but it's still this cycle of like people download it, they really like it, they miss this one feature, and then you add that, and then they find another feature. Like it's it's just this constant reel of of change and improvement. Uh, that's that's really fun, and it's like fun to work with people. It's fun to design API and then see how people fail to understand it, and then you realize that you did a shit job, <laughs> and then you're slowly learning how to actually design API that's good. Yeah, uh, and then having this constant feedback loop with people actually purchasing and then needing your product and needing a product that works well. Uh, yeah, that's fun. That was fun eight years ago. That's still and a lot of, a lot of fun today. Yeah. I guess one challenge for you also is that since you are developing a closed source product that you are, you know, selling to companies, uh, you you kind of get a different relationship because when you do an open source project, for example, uh, you can see the source code, first of all, and you can also kind of self-service a little bit more. So how do you usually deal with these kind of things, especially you mentioned API design, uh, like to decide kind of what to incorporate into the product, into the framework, and what kind of to leave as things that others can write extensions for? Yeah, that's a difficult topic. Um, we actually did sell the source code in the in the beginning, mm -hmm. maybe the first two to three years. There was an option to, to get it. And then there were a lot of problems because of that, because people took shortcuts and changed the source code right and then we updated a new version and then they ask us hey we only need this one this one thing from the change log can you send me the patch file <laughs> and, and this is like that's not really something that scales this is it's also dangerous because i cannot be fully sure that this change applied alone will not break something else yeah, and then you miss this whole QA thing, and then of course if it breaks, and we are to we are to blame again. So we had a lot of trouble with people that that did such changes, like small and large ones, or relied too heavily on implementation details because they were just reading the implementation and then designing their subclass exactly based on it, and then we changed some internal things that shouldn't matter, but did matter if you actually know them. So I feel like it's it's very much the same thing that Apple does, where sometimes they are like vague about things, like what you get in return and what thread it calls you or uh, timings. That's basically so you you don't end up in a corner where you can't change or make something better again um, because you were too specific in 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 the guarantees. So. Yeah. You see that in UIKit a lot, and I feel we are very much in the same place where we we try to be as helpful as possible, but sometimes we cannot tell you all the details because then maybe we are not yet happy with the details, right? Maybe we still want to make those things better. Yeah, and what you want to do is you want to have people rely on the public API, like you say, right? And you're totally right, I think, that sometimes there is a danger when you're using something that you can see through and you can see the implementation and you know how it works internally. And I think this is also a problem that many people face in their own code bases as well, not only like when interacting with other libraries or frameworks, is that if you were the person who wrote a certain class or a certain piece of code, you kind of know how it works and you will code against it in a different way than if you have this like more finely uh, grained API, like more well-defined API that you kind of have to work against. Yeah. And if you 
do that for many, many years, then eventually you will forget things or people will move on because actually I think in our team, we have a pretty good retention rate. So a lot of people are there for quite a long time, but still at some point people move on, people work on different components and then you, you don't really know anymore what the intent was and all those little details. So um, over the years we learned that you have to document your interfaces, not just the public ones, but also the internal ones, because otherwise you'll have a rough time. Yeah. And then the, the, the other problem is that you also need to make sure to keep your comments up to date. <laughs> yeah. They are not being compiled and it's very easy to, to have comment rot when you don't also make sure to look for that in pull requests and reviews and and also push for them to, to stay up to date. So how do you usually deal with that? Because I guess that's a very important part of your workflow since, like we mentioned, uh, your customers these days, they don't get access to the full under the hood implementation. So I guess documentation must be like a really, really po important part of the overall product. Yeah, um, this is something we got a lot better over the years. In the beginning, it basically was, lit no, it literally was you just get the headers and we added documentation and then you got example projects. But now we have very detailed headers, um, example projects, and then we have a whole guides. So we really write articles about all the topics that you'd be interested in. Like there's a whole article about the annotation toolbar, like from the, from the, what it is, how it's designed, what you can do, what you can change. Uh, to like explaining examples. Here's how you could design your own toolbar. Here's why this might not be a good idea and so on and so forth. So, and that takes a lot of time. I mean, it's, it's like writing blog posts, just longer ones. And then you need technical review. You need a copy review. You probably want to add images. So there's, that's actually a lot of work. And then of course, this whole thing has to be versionized because Maybe you're still an older version and you don't want to read documentation for something that doesn't yet apply. So you need to build the whole, that whole system as well. So yeah, that took, that took a good while. Yeah. Do you also use a lot of documentation internally, like within your own classes, the ones that you don't expose as part of the public API? Do you use documentation to kind of communicate within the team or is it that something mostly left for the public facing API? We do document our internal headers as well. Sometimes not as much as the public ones, but we're getting better at that. And we also have uh, markdown files for subsystems that basically give you an overview about this is what this subsystem does. This is, these were the design goals. These are the shortcomings. This is how it's basically structured. Like for internal stuff, this is really important um, yeah saves you a lot of time if you have to revisit something or just fix a bug and you you maybe didn't touch that part in a year and now you have to like uh, dig deep in and, and fix something that's like super obscure so uh 
I don't think a lot of people have experience kind of building and shipping a closed source SDK. So I think it's really fascinating to hear like, you know, how you work with that. Uh, but one thing that a lot of people do have experience with, myself included, is working against a closed source SDK. <laughs> and that's something that we're basically doing uh, every day, building iOS apps. We're working against like UIKit and AppKit and Foundation and all of the kind of Apple frameworks that we are provided. And of course, like sometimes uh, just like how your customers give you feedback and, you know, the, you discover that sometimes the API design wasn't up to par or sometimes uh, the documentation needed improvements. Uh, we find those things as well. And I know that you in particular have uh, been very kind of active in both kind of finding and reporting a lot of bugs in, in Radar. And it's actually kind of funny because uh, whenever I have a guest on the show, I like to do a little bit of kind of internet stalking. <laughs> uh, just, you know, check out like a little bit, you know, if there's something fun we could talk about. And I found a very interesting blog post from you, actually. And I think this blog post for me is very much kind of what I think about when I think about you, especially uh, when I first started following you like a couple of years ago. And I don't know if you remember this blog post, but it's called Fixing What Apple Doesn't. It's about uh, kind of you identifying a problem in an Apple class and you are using, um, you are kind of reverse engineering it, you're figuring out how it works and you're actually patching it by swizzling layout subviews. And then you're also like filing radars and you're reporting this bug and you're actually fixing the problem. And for me, this is like, uh, when I read this, I was like, yeah, that's, that's totally Peter. <laughs> you know, this, this thing like figuring out how it, how it works and then kind of filing the radar as well. What's this about the print print dialogue? Exactly, yeah. It's about the print kind of popover. I do remember that one, yeah. So obviously you've spent a lot of time kind of figuring out UIKit, uh, you know, even going to the lengths of like um, patching it and stuff like that. So uh, when do you usually decide to actually go and file a radar and start that dialogue with Apple? Uh, when do you kind of realize that this is something I need to report? I think very early um, the more raiders, the better. And sometimes it's, it's very egoistical because I also use them to document the hacks and we use them to document the hacks we do. So whenever we, we have to write a workaround for something that's not working, write a radar. It's, it, it doesn't take that long. Mm -hmm. you, you're, especially if you do it right while you're in front of the problem and we use tools like brisk. So it's, it's really easy. You can like. That whole explanation of the problem is, is a great documentation that you can revisit in the future. It's like, why are we calling this crazy thing? Or why is this there? Oh, you have this radar link and it's an open radar as well. And I could just read up what we did here. Maybe it also has a test case on why we had to do it. And then maybe if it's something that's like old, I can just download the test case and then see if it's still a problem on the minimum iOS version. And then maybe just rip out that whole code. Oh, nice. And that's, and that's beautiful. And I know that in the early years, we didn't do that. And then you always end up with this code of, this is weird. Why is it there? It looks dangerous. It also <laughs> like looks dangerous to remove. And then, uh, yeah, you cannot really be sure. And you have to spend a lot of time figuring out what you did um, back then. So it doesn't hurt. It's, it's great documentation. Why not? Yeah. Like, and, and, and often, you you do get feedback or maybe you just get a don't do that best example is uh we we recently 
improve the way we do drag and drop. So we have this document editor, you can like move pages around and like um, add or remove them. But wouldn't it be cool to like use the app in split screen and just drag an image in or drag in a document and then that document would like expand and you see all the pages and it just, you basically merge two documents. So we added that and that, that was easy. That all worked uh, fairly easy. I think the, the drag and drop API is very well designed. I think it's a little underused because sometimes there's like bugs where you think, why did, why is it still in iOS 12 there? Did nobody run into that? Is nobody using that? But overall it's, it's a good API. Mm -hmm. But then we thought, Hey, we also have tabs. Wouldn't it be cool to like take a page and then you drag it to another tab so you can interact with the two open documents you have and then just copy a page from this one document into the other. And that crashed in very interesting and horrible ways. <laughs> so we, we did report a bug and then ultimately the answer we, we got was basically don't do that. Right. <laughs> and and that the don't do that was because how we built our tab view is that it, it also based on memory constraints, it reuses the embedded UI view controller, like the PSPDF view controller. You know, everything's PSPDF. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so when you change the tab, it's actually not a new view controller. It's the same view controller reloaded. Right. So while we started a drag operation on that UI collection view, and then you move to the other tab, actually we reloaded that very same collection view and gave it different data. Ah. But you still had those... You still were within the drag operation and that just caused wild assertions and like inconsistencies because nobody thought about abusing API like that. Right. Like I'm kind of surprised that the drag operation doesn't, doesn't stop, but I think there was just a, a wild edge case on, on API design that they never thought of. And we didn't like... Uh, the person on the team that, that built it didn't think about the reload fact because he never touched the the tab bar controller. So he didn't know that we reused the view controller. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we, we wrote the radar and, and that's basically when we realized, duh, this is like, of course, it's, it's broken because of that, right? Yeah. So that also means Apple will not fix that because it's it's very corner case. Like, I think that there's more important problems. You cannot... You cannot make a API resistant to any stupidity. <laughs> and then we eventually, I mean, actually we haven't solved it yet because the real solution will probably be to change the way we do the tab controller or maybe have separate collection views. I don't know yet, but definitely like writing the trailer and then, and then through writing, we already kind of realized, oh, this is actually what's happening because you have to make a sample project, right? You don't want to write a radar with just text that that's not helpful. You need a sample project. And then that project didn't crash in the beginning, only after we really reproduced our setup. And then we re realized, oh yeah, uh, that's just a stupid setup. Yeah, and that's a really, really good point is that you're both kind of examining the problem from a different angle by writing about it. So you're like thinking a little bit more about it. You're 
you know, thinking it through once more. And then also, as you say, when you are going to that length to actually create a sample project that reproduces the the bug or the issue uh, in the kind of smallest possible way, uh, you can also figure out sometimes that, hey, it was actually my fault this time, or that, uh, like in this case, where it might not be like a supported feature. So I think that's also a really good uh, kind of exercise to do, even if you are uh, not kind of, you know, in the mood right now for reporting the bug, but you rather just want to figure it out. It's like moving it over to like an isolated environment and trying to reproduce it there is usually a really good way to go. It's also fun because everybody on the team does support. It's kind of like one of the job description is you also work on support and support, I would say, is the most important thing we do at the company. So our goal is to give you a reply within 24 hours or less. Usually it's way less. So sometimes we can fix things within minutes because people have this huge API and this binary framework and the only way they can solve a problem often is like by using support. You pay for it. Yeah. You want to you wanna have awesome support. So this is like, and then sometimes people are very vague about how to report things. So we're also always pushing this. Uh, can you be more detailed? Can you give us screenshots? Can you give us an example project? So being on the other side and then like writing this ticket is actually fun if you like also work a lot on support because you can finally be that person that, haha, I found the bug. <laughs> and not always like, oh yeah, you found the bug. I'm sorry. Yeah. You work on it. It's not something I need to push at all. This is happening very organically we have a, a whole channel in our slack just for raiders and coordinating them and then if it's a really important one we all do it and or we discuss it like the the drag and drop one and figure out it's oh actually it was awful all along that's really really fascinating that you do that and i also think this is another case of where being kind of on both sides of something like it builds a lot of empathy right because you you have been in that boat as well so you kind of know what goes into it so i think that's really really cool all right, next up, I want to talk to you about cross-platform development, because I know that's something that you do quite a lot. But before we do, let's take a very quick break and thank our first sponsor. And it's my good friends at Instabug. Instabug is a super comprehensive bug and crash reporting SDK. As we all know, all software has bugs, but finding out the root cause of a bug or a crash can be really difficult and take a lot of time. I know that I've spent so much time during my career debugging things, finding out the root cause of a crash, and it can be really, really tricky. And that's exactly what Instabug helps you with. Not only does Instabug give you detailed crash reports down to the exact line of code that caused the crash and including important stats and information that can help you figure out exactly what went wrong a lot quicker, they also include the most user-friendly bug reporting tool I've ever seen. I'm telling you, your testers, they will love this. So when a tester encounters a bug, all they have to do is shake their phone. That brings up this super nice bug reporting menu where they can attach a screenshot, a video, they can annotate those things to show you exactly what went wrong. And then all that goes into Instabug where you can see all of this information in one super nice UI. You can also see visual reproduction steps and even the view hierarchy up to the point where the bug was reported. It's super cool stuff. So I've already integrated Instabug into one of my projects and I'm planning to keep adding it to even more. It takes just a few minutes to set up and it's completely free to get started. 
I really recommend that you check it out, try it, and I think you'll also be amazed by how much faster you can find and solve bugs and crashes in your app. So to find out more, go to instabug.com slash Sundell to get started completely for free. They're also offering a 25% discount on all of their paid plans for listeners of this show. So once again, that's instabug.com slash Sundell to get started with Instabug for free and to save 25% off any of their paid plans. Please make sure to use that URL as it lets Instabug know that you came from this show, which really helps support me and my work. So thank you so much to Instabug for supporting Swift by Sundell. So about cross-platform developments. I know that you build PSPDF kit not only for iOS, but you build it for many, many different platforms. Uh, so how did you kind of start branching out into new platforms and how do you share some of your kind of core logic between all those different implementations? Yeah, that was, that was a tough one because up to version four, so basically four years in, the whole code base was iOS and uh, Objective-C. And actually, iOS was against C++ because if you remember in the early days, we had um, libc++ and libstd++, um, svdc++. Because there was like GCC and Clang and you could change which compiler you want. And based on that, that's the additional library that they link to. So the end result was if I would have used C++ in the early days, I would have needed to provide two versions of the SDK. One that's linked against uh, lib, against Clang's lib and one's against GCC's libs. Because while they are technically implementing the same spec, it's just not the same on the binary level. So I thought this is messy. I can do that all in C and I don't need to deal with any of that trouble. So we had a lot of, there was a lot of C for performance. I built my own linked lists, uh, my own vectors. and Your own class system and your own inheritance structures. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Let, let's not go that far. I know projects, <laughs> I know projects that built their own uh, try catch handling in C because you can do anything. Oh, yeah. You can do anything in C if you, if you you'll really like pain. But <laughs> that that's kind of where we were. And then we we thought there was this this pivotal moment where we thought, do we just do iOS or do we want to like become bigger and actually solve problems for other platforms? And I looked at all the all these conversations I had with with customers, and you know, like by by then it was like already more people, so we. We discussed a lot and then figured the only way this company can succeed in the long term is if we if we move to being a, a problem solver, mm -hmm. not yeah. just for iOS, but basically for PDF. So the, the platform in the end result should be an implementation detail and you can use us on any platform. And I think we are actually there. Like we have PSPDF kit on any platform that has relevance, including Electron. So don't hate me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's on, it's on iOS, it's on Android, it's on macOS, it's on Windows, it's on Linux via our server platform. It's on the web. We actually have a web version that uses WebAssembly and one that, that uses a, a dedicated server to render. So it's pretty much everywhere you can think of it. Yeah, that's amazing. And back then, the only way to do that was using C++. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, you could just, you could, of course, use C, but it's a fairly complex code base. And 
it's just very easy to make mistakes in C. Yeah. Like you can create beautiful, beautiful libraries, but all this memory, memory management, if you make one tiny mistake, then you have a very hard to debug crash. Um, and you, you can just get stuff done faster with C++. So back then it was the only, really the only choice we're thinking about it. There was no discussion what language. There was more discussion, should we do that or shouldn't we do that? And we decided, yes, we should absolutely do that. And that was the beginning of uh, Core, what we call it. It's funny because every single company who has a shared code base between platforms, they always call it Core. <laughs> like it's always called Core in every every single project. I think that's uh, that's funny. Yeah, we, we have the core team even. So. Oh, there you go. That's perfect. Uh, <laughs> and they're, they're the most important ones because if the core team messes up, then everybody everybody feels the pain. So yeah, they are like, also like they write C++. So they are like a special kind of awesome. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you mentioned that, you know, back in the day when you got started, the C++ was like the only kind of viable option for you. Uh, but if you were to get the question today, which I get a lot, is, you know, how do you basically share code between platforms? Would you still go with the kind of C++ approach uh, if you were to start fresh today? Like, do you feel confident in that? Or would you kind of pick something different? Uh, I would I would pick either C++ or Rust, to be honest. Um, mm -hmm. C++ is really beautiful because you can just mix and match it with Objective-C. Yeah. So that gives you a lot of power. And Rust has this benefits of actually being sane in terms of and being very, very strict in terms of who owns the memory. Mm -hmm. And while modern C++ is really not like the old C++. So when you think about the old C++, you think about new and delete. And then maybe there was this weird delete for erase, if you remember that. And that's really an anti-pattern right now. Yeah. In, in, in modern C++, you have... You basically have deterministic arc. You have unique pointers, you have shared pointers, you have weak pointers, and the retain cycling, the retain counting is completely handled by the compiler. Very much like arc, just that there is no concept of auto release pull. So an object either is there or it's no longer there. It's not it's not going going away in the next run, but which actually makes debugging a lot simpler because it's much more predictable. You don't have this, uh, you know, like on on Objective-C, you have like NS, NS underscore valid until the end of scope. And uh -huh. those, yeah. those kind of things that like are corner cases where something might be deallocated early and then it, but that's not happening in debug mode. And then you have a crash in the release build. And it's like, it's a very... I completely understand why it's there and it makes sense, but it's a very annoying category of bugs that you don't have in C++ in, in a modern one. Yeah. I would probably also still go with C++. I worked on a, quite a number of code bases, including Spotify, which also shares a lot of code between platforms. And the benefit also with C++ is that even though there's like a lot of things to dislike about it, maybe if you come from... Uh, you know, Objective-C or Swift or some other language, uh, it has such a big kind of industry spread and you can find uh, so much documentation about it, so many people are using it and so many people are using it also for this specific use case. And like you mentioned also, it interacts very, very well with uh, with iOS specifically with uh, interoperability, direct interoperability with uh, Objective-C, which you could then call from your Swift code, for example. Right. 
And you said it's not as good as Objective-C, which I would question. Um, it's always very much dependent on what you do with it. I think Objective-C is still a great language to build UI. Granted, Swift is more expressive and you can get stuff done faster in it and you need less characters. Uh-huh, yeah. Um, but when we move to, when you introduced core and then slowly moved code over from what we had on iOS to C++, it usually became faster and less buggy while porting it. So you can definitely make the argument that we learned things and when we transformed, we could like already make better code. But the compiler also gives you stricter requirements, right? You have like, back then there was no, there were no generics in Objective-C. So, uh, but everything's very strongly typed in C++. And then you have, it's, it's, it's hard in, in Objective-C to even have a, an array with numbers, an array of ints. You have, you have to box everything. You, it's instantly slow, even though numbers are text pointers, you have a lot of overhead that you just don't have if you use vector of int. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so just by doing that bit by bit, the product got better because it became faster and it became more stable because we just found edge cases where like types didn't match up or things we didn't thought about. And then the C++ compiler doesn't let you compile when you don't fix that. And I think this is actually interesting because, I mean, I say the thing about C++ comparing to other languages because I think this is a very kind of common uh, opinion in the community, but I also think that sometimes uh, people might underestimate just how much C++ and Swift actually have in common, especially when it comes to kind of the, not only like syntax, but just like how you think when you're coding it and the staticness of it and the type system and all those things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's, I mean, that's a lot of people in the community figured it out that Swift is not an evolution of Objective-C, it's an evolution of C++. Right, exactly. Um, and it's also like one of the biggest complaints. And like a few months back, there was this big blog post about uh, all this rant on why Swift is bad because it's not dynamic and, and blah, uh, which has very valid points. But a lot of software also got better because Swift is less dynamic because this dynamicness is often is a source of of many bugs, especially around the model layer with Swift. You can it's so much easier to build good models in Swift than it is in Objective-C. Uh, that's actually, uh, I, I say that's like one of my pet peeves that it's so hard to, you have to work so hard to make classes, uh, model classes good in, in Objective-C, like implementing hash and equals, uh, implementing a builder pattern. This is so much stuff to write that is so much nicer in in Swift and it's also so much nicer in C++. Yeah, and it's always like that, like you give and you take, like the dynamicness, it gives you a lot of power, uh, but it also kind of enables you to kind of shoot yourself in the foot in a way or make APIs that are not as clear. And with the more strict and uh, static type system, uh, you get more help, but you also can kind of uh, sometimes don't have all that dynamism that you might wish for. So uh, one other thing that I want to ask you is that um, I think that a lot of people uh, are facing the issue of kind of how to 
uh, decide kind of what goes into some kind of shared code base and what kind of stays in the more specific implementation. And I know that not everyone kind of writes C++ and ships on many, many different platforms, but I know that a lot of developers these days are using frameworks uh, as part of their development, or they might ship like a extension or a tvOS app or something like that. So what is kind of your thought process about that? Like, how do you decide what goes into the core library and what do you keep kind of platform specific? So we have all the, the parsing, the rendering, all of that is in core, like all the, the data models are there. Um, so you have like a data model for an annotation, a bookmark, an outline element, uh, a form element. Everything is everything is in core. Core doesn't do UI, and core, with very very few exceptions, doesn't do threading. So pretty much everything is is synchronous, and it's like very easy to reason about it. Mm -hmm. And then. We also made this decision of we never want to pester people with C++ headers, with C++ API. And this was even before there was Swift, and it would not be a huge problem to use it from Objective-C, but you you shouldn't have to know about C++ to, to use our, our product. So everything was encapsulated. So even if we have a, a C++ class that's annotation, there's also an Objective-C version of it, which en basically encapsulates the C++ version and then really nicely wraps it. And instead of our custom color, you get a UI color or on the Mac an NS color object. And the beauty is because it, you can inter integrate these languages so tightly, you actually don't pay much overhead to translate between those two. You can do a lot of tricks to make it really fast. Mm -hmm. We don't do UI in core. I see that as, as very difficult. Our goal is to be an SDK that feels like Apple would have built it or Google would have built it. So you just have to build UI with what the platform gives you. That's Objective-C on iOS, that's Java on, on Android, and that's like JavaScript on the web and so on. So there's really no good way to do cross-platform UI without making it suck. Right. There, of course, there are frameworks like React Native that that try to solve that, but we cannot require React Native for any of those large frameworks. Yeah, of course. And even there, you 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 pay a price. It's not it's not the same as building it native. It's pretty close, and then it has other benefits, but it's it's not what people expect. So UI is always built native, and the whole lower levels like model parsing and then to a certain extent even networking we do in core yeah yeah i think that's a very good line to draw i mean usually what i say is that you f if you follow mvc and you consider the view controllers to be part of the v like part of the view layer and then you can pretty much end up uh, moving the M and the C to a shared library, like your model code, your controller code, like the pure logic that you have, and then try to uh, completely separate that from the UI, which is a good exercise in of its own, I think, to actually think more clearly about those APIs, think more clearly about the lines that you draw between these layers, and just end up having kind of a UI implementation on top of your kind of core library that does the heavy lifting in terms of the logic. Right. Uh, and because you, you just were talking about architectures, um, 
If you want to know a very dirty secret, our main view controller has around 6,000 lines. Oh, wow. And it, it used to have over 10,000 lines. Oh, that's a good refactor then. It's interesting because you have to approach architecture different when you do an SDK. You have to think about different trade-offs. If you move all the functionality in your view controller into helpers, you make it very, very hard for people to actually subclass the view controller and then change those implementations. Mm -hmm. Or you have to give people, you, you have to make the API of those 100 helpers public. What? How do you make it that people can subclass a helper? So, yeah. so there's like a lot of things that you have to think about in different ways when you build an SDK. Like we optimize so it's easy to reason about it and it's easy to subclass. That's That's how we ended up with such a large class because it just has a lot of responsibilities and breaking it up into 50 subclasses would make the API so much harder to understand that having a large class is an acceptable drawback on our side to make it easier to be used uh, from the customer's point of view. Right, yeah. yeah, that's a very interesting kind of uh, trade-off in this case. And that's actually a perfect segue into the next topic and that is all about code maintenance. But before we jump into that topic, let's take another quick break and thank our second and final sponsor. And it's once again, my good friends at Bitrise. Bitrise offers fast, reliable, and easy to use continuous integration. They've got this completely visual interface for constructing workflows of how you want to build, test, and even distribute your app to your testers and to the app store. One thing that I really like is that you can use Bitrise for pretty much any kind of mobile app project, and it works pretty much the same way. So even if you might be focused on iOS, if your team or company also ships on Android or the Mac, or if you have some projects in things like Xamarin or React Native, you can use Bitrise for those as well. And that's really awesome because it lets you have a shared way to build and distribute on all platforms, which really helps your testers, it helps make things consistent, and it also lets you share knowledge and how you set things up across different platforms. Now for iOS and Mac apps in particular, Bitrise seamlessly integrates with all of your usual tools. You can use things like CocoaPods and Fastlane and Carthage, or just use the built-in Xcode stuff. Builds, unit tests and UI tests run fast and smoothly, and they've got great error reporting and support if something ever goes wrong. And it's also super easy to invite new testers and people who aren't developers to Bitrise, so they can easily test the app and they can even get a new build on every single commit that you make. So if you're still running your own CI service on like a Mac mini under someone's desk or in a closet, or if you haven't set up continuous integration yet, then I really recommend that you check Bitrise out. It'll save you so much time and frustration and make it so much easier to ship your app with high quality. I personally use it myself and I genuinely recommend it. And the best part is that you can get started completely for free. All you have to do is go to bitrise.io slash swiftbysundell. That'll let you get started for free and you can build your app, you can test it out and you can see how awesome it is to have smooth, powerful, continuous integration for your project. Once again, that's bitrise.io slash swiftbysundell to get started with Bitrise completely for free. Thank you so much again to Bitrise for their continued support of Swift by Sundell, which really helps making this show possible. 
So I think maintaining code is a challenge that almost every developer faces at one point or another. You know, when they need to maintain something over a long period of time, things are growing, you end up with these larger classes, and you want to try to kind of refactor things and improve the quality. So how do you kind of continuously work with this kind of large code base that you have, uh, which you need to you know, keep very high quality for your customers, you need to keep the API evolving in a good way. How do you kind of continuously maintain this product? Yeah, that's a very big topic. And a little earlier, I said we are kind of like Apple because we we have a closed source SDK. But actually, we're not like Apple because we don't have to be binary compatible. You know, we actually sometimes can break expectations or we can deprecate and then eventually remove API, which is which is huge. Like you look at UIKit, like... The, I think the only thing ever that ever was deprecated from UIKit at all was the device identifier for political reasons. All oh, right. Everything yeah. else, even things that were deprecated in iOS 3 are still there and they still have to be, you can still call it and it still mostly works. Yeah, you have a lot of soft deprecations as well in UIKit. Like, for example, you have two different ways of dequeuing table view cells, and they're both still there, right? And I think the modern way was, like, introduced in iOS 4 or something. Yeah, so things stick around for a long time in these kind of frameworks. Right. We are a little more aggressive. We do deprecate, and then it depends on how important the component is. If it's something very deep very deep in the framework and we know that it's it only comes up very rarely on support then maybe we don't keep those deprecations around for long and then eventually do a proper cleanup um, mm -hmm. but yes it is quite a lot more work because you always think about if i change this what impact will this have on the api or what impact will this have on those callers and then we also have a we kind of have two categories. We have regular API and we have a subclassing hooks. So regular API kind of has like strong guarantees. It's like, it'll likely be there at least during that version. We'll deprecate it. Uh, we'll give you alternatives. And then subclassing hooks are a little more, okay, we know that your use case needs to change this. Um, maybe we eventually change that. It's your responsibility to make sure things still work if you use those so that's that's how we we help ourselves a little bit to not be completely tied in a corner yeah and then when you when you approach long-term code evolution we never did a whole rewrite so there is still code in there from the very first version so you can you can do a git blame and you will find things from 2010 in there that's awesome i love that that was before we had arc and when you still had to implement view did unload. All oh, right. <laughs> so that code is went through a lot and then was yeah, originally written for iOS 3 where you didn't even have blocks. Mm -hmm. And the way we approach it is we we just continuously refactor. We have a few principles like you go into a class, leave it more tidy than you you entered it. It's kind of like like your place right you always if you clean up a little bit all the time it'll never get really messy oh yeah that's a good one and the scout rule i think people call it as well right like leave it better than you found it exactly that's not nothing's free nothing's perfect so 
The drawback on that is that often when you review pull requests, you have a few commits that actually contain the changes and you have a few lipstick comments and we actually call them lipstick and sometimes we just use the lipstick emoji <laughs> nice um that basically are noise and they also make it a little harder to do a git blame but it's all it's all trade-offs if you don't do it while you work on that component you'll probably not do it yeah in the perfect world you pro you you would make that pull request and then you make a separate one just for lipsticks and refactors but It, that that's not that's not what happens in the in the world. Nobody nobody then spends the time and goes back and does yet another pull request where you maybe break something. It's 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 too much effort. So we just allow people to refactor little by little code as they read them. If I if I read code and I still find places where we don't use let, um, I change it unless it's unless there's a good reason for it, right? We have all these blog posts about better Objective-C, so our, our Objective-C actually looks very much like Swift in a few ways. Yeah, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. I think those are very interesting. And it, it also caused quite a bit of discussion. <laughs> I still remember that I I snuck uh, let and var into our code base while <laughs> our iOS lead was on holiday. Oh, that's just mean. <laughs> I know, I know. This was, this was, that, was that was really mean. Um, I was just like... I just thought this is like the best thing ever and surprise. <laughs> <laughs> I felt like I, I saw the light and then eventually uh, everyone, everyone saw that. But yeah, of course there's all the code that doesn't yet, that was written before we had these concepts. So we just refactor continuously and make the code little by little better. And there's so much code. So you always find, you always find spots where you, you, you change something. Of course, sometimes you also break stuff. So hopefully there are tests. Sometimes for older components, there are not as much tests as we'd like. So there's always a little bit of risk. But all in all, I think it's 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 better than not doing it and then having a code base that's like very unfriendly and then you will have much harder time to, to implement new features. And it's, it's less fun if if it's horrible to read. Yeah. And the thing that I usually say is that I don't think that good architecture comes from great planning up front, you know, where someone draws this magical uh, diagram on a whiteboard and everyone follows that plan and everything is beautiful and perfectly abstracted and everything. I think that a good architecture and a good kind of code base quality, usually it comes from just good maintenance where, like you say, you know, you go into some piece of the code and you find, hmm, this is not really working the way I expected it to, then you can refactor it, you can change it while you're working on it. And if you continuously do that, you usually end up with, you know, a pretty good code base, or at least you prevent it from kind of keep heading in that kind of wrong direction. Uh, because usually where I think that spaghetti code kind of comes from is when you have these kind of problems and you don't address them, but you just keep kind of piling hacks upon hacks upon hacks. And then eventually you end up with this house that was kind of built on this completely rocky foundation and you feel the urge to tear it down and rewrite. And I think a testament to the fact that you haven't done a rewrite is the fact that you have this kind of part of your workflow where you are continuously improving, continuously refactoring. And one thing that I tend to do as well is uh, in regards to testing is to also follow this rule where I work on a lot of projects where when I join the project, there's zero tests. Uh, and of course I could take like a 
kind of um, very absolute approach to it and say, well, the first uh, two months of this project, I'm just going to write tests, but that's probably not going to fly. So instead, what I do is that every time I have to fix a bug or every time I have to write a new feature, I also accompany that uh, change with tests. And that way I can kind of continuously improve the test coverage over time without kind of disrupting the development flow. Yeah, that's basically what we do as well. One one more thing about long running code bases. Sometimes you you keep doing cleanups, but you come to this conclusion that things are beyond repair, or you just need a large change to fix some fundamental issues that you cannot really hack around, or only like it it becomes harder and harder to to push the code to do what you want because it's just not set out that way that's something we found eventually with our view hierarchy so it used to be us scroll view and then we just added views and it's basically two scroll views that interact with each other that are nested oh classic uh, and then eventually we need a double page mode mm-hmm. so the whole concept of oh one view is one page no longer f- did no longer apply you now had spreads and then a spread could have one page or two pages or theoretically even more and the design we had for a long time still didn't account for that concept and then a lot of subtle problems came along because people were using the api wrong like internal api right it was much less of an issue from the outside than it was from the inside and then we we wanted to have certain features like maintaining the the zoom as you scroll which required a lot of workarounds so but it also was this thing that's like insanely complex and very core to what we do so it took a long time actually only only with version 7 as we we were thinking about what do we do with version seven. We saw this large list of issues where we we didn't have a, a good answer to. Some were very minor, and some were annoying, and some features that we wanted we couldn't just we couldn't implement. We didn't saw a, a good way, so we we chose to re-implement the whole view hierarchy, like the whole way we lay out pages, we do zooming, um, which was an immense project. So. That we actually started by writing a new app and testing new ideas, testing how we can do different ways, how we could do page reusing. And we, we had this crazy idea, can we use UI collection view for that? Because you get a lot of things for free with yeah. UI collection view. And it's it's just a really, really beautiful designed API. Can we just write our custom layout and do that? And so we we worked a month or two on like experimenting and then figured out, yes, we can do that. And then we, we built this whole new component, basically aside. And then there was one big pull request that added it to the <laughs> existing, to the existing project, but basically as a separate realm, like most classes had different names anyway. And in the, in the very few occasions where things clashed, we just renamed the new thing. So you, we could, we would still be able to theoretically ship and all of those extra classes would have just been dormant and people would have never seen them. Um, 
maybe maybe the binary was 50 kilobyte larger but like not not a problem at all yeah and then we kept working on that because we still didn't knew okay we we knew that we can pull it off in this separate app can we actually do it for a much more complex setup here and can we do it in time because that means a lot of api change and this is something we really only want to do with a big version update so there was like a time a time constraint as well so it was actually very exciting to follow that and then like slowly more people in the team like helped working on it and helped fixing weird problems because uh, time was running out little by little and we really wanted that to succeed and it, we did succeed we did ship a whole new new hierarchy and then eventually we just deleted all those old classes and switched on the new mode that must have been a beautiful pull request it was a very scary pull request <laughs> 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 because while it all worked in our case we knew that oh what do there will be people with like subclasses with weird edge cases um but overall this was a was a huge success where we replaced a small but important part not actually not that small an important part of the fdsdk with completely new code but still having everything around it that's being unchanged yeah so this is also like an approach that you can do when you when you work on a a large code base you you take this surgical approach and rip something out and replace it with something better so um, i wouldn't say it's the hard but uh maybe put a new face on it and yeah that that works very well you just have to be very it has to be very well planned out like timing wise and i think also the approach how we we started out doing all of that in an in a separate app yeah that's key where you have much much faster iteration times you can everything's much faster when you do it separately you don't have to sync up with the team and then eventually using that knowledge and and base classes and putting it into your main project again yeah, that was that was a very interesting big refactor yeah i think that's uh, really really awesome to hear and it's uh it's usually the approach that i recommend as well is this surgical uh, approach that you that you mentioned also uh, i think that's the key word there surgical it's like sometimes you do need to replace a subsystem because it's too old or it's it's it got too complicated and you just need kind of a little bit of a fresh start but rather than like tearing down everything and starting completely from scratch uh replacing it like uh, piece by piece can be a really really good strategy and also one other key thing there that you mentioned which i do a lot as well is prototyping where you basically like just start out in a completely isolated environment you can free you from some of the constraints of your own code base but it doesn't necessarily mean you need to kind of start over completely from scratch you are uh, building this new subsystem kind of in isolation but then you can kind of move it in and kind of migrate to it while still shipping your product which is also one of the key points Cool. So what do you say? Should we uh, round off this episode by answering some questions from the audience? Sure. Let's take it a go. All right. Let's do that. So we're going to start off here with a question from Mukesh Tawani. And he asks, as PSPDF Kit is working on a lot of different technologies and you, Peter, being an iOS developer, how do you approach other technologies like Android or WebAssembly? Do you spend a lot of time learning about them? A little secret I'm some, I sometimes feel like an imposter when you use the iOS developer because most of my time is not spent coding anymore. Like I need to think about the strategy, about a whole product pipeline, not just iOS, but all the platforms, how we can keep continuity 
over them and all those different technologies and, and all those high level decisions. We have amazing people on the team, so I really trust them as most of the decisions, but I still need to understand what they are talking about. So yes, I did write some Android code, even though it usually takes a long review. <laughs> <laughs> and then it, it's been quite a while since I did that. I, I sometimes get my hands dirty on core, mm-hmm. um, which I, C++, I feel quite at home. At least I understand it, that the small subset that we use. And JavaScript is, is probably like my weakest point. I did I did write that like years ago, but um, I'm not really contributing much to to our web projects. Uh, but I do read a lot of pull requests, and I I think it's a it's a great way to just learn learn about the language by reading what other people are doing, and you can like ask them questions. So yes, I do try to to make an effort to understand all the tech technologies that we use. Um, right. And I think that you can get a lot of that insight by doing kind of what you're doing, which is being curious and uh, reading pull requests and getting yourself kind of a little bit involved, even if you're not writing a ton of code for all the different platforms, because we can't all be experts on all the different platforms. But uh, staying curious and kind of uh, looking into kind of what other platforms are doing, I think is usually something that opens up your mind a lot. And this is also something that I try to do as much as possible, where uh, usually I work in a team together with like Android developers or backend developers. And I love to also kind of involve myself in what they're doing and to n- not kind of um, be the person who goes in and says, well, this is how we do it on iOS. So we should do it like this everywhere, but more kind of listen and hear what other people are doing, what kind of problems they're facing, picking up these like really interesting patterns that you maybe never used before or some tools or techniques that you can actually kind of bring back to your own language. And a great example of this, I think, is uh, when I was uh, using Java for the first time was when I kind of got introduced to the builder pattern. And I had never used a builder pattern before. And I was kind of, wow, this is amazing. And now I use it a lot, even in Swift and other languages as well. So I think being an open-minded about different technologies is usually a very good asset. It, it also is a good change because you get to know different things and you learn a lot and then you can you can still come back and contribute to to ios um and you definitely will be will be a better developer or project manager if you if you it broadens your horizon yeah yeah absolutely all right our next question comes from neil yain who wants to know a little bit about rendering performance so the question is how have you maintained rendering performance for every supported OS version? I think in one of your talks, Peter, you mentioned using even private APIs for improvements as well. So what are your secret magic tricks to great rendering performance? That might be from a long time ago, but we're not using private API for anything that's business critical. So there is admittedly a little bit where we where we work around some bugs or make the UI a little bit nicer. But for every little thing we do, we have, like, we can just remove it and the product will still work very well. I would never want to ship something that needs private API to work. Right. Um, and render performance actually improved because we control the whole stack. So in the early years, we used Apple's PDF renderer and you really couldn't control much. You could, it was this black box and this was very frustrating when you had 
documents that just crashed. It's very deep inside CGPDF, inside core graphics, or that just didn't render correctly, or were uh, parsing failed, and all you could reply on support was, well, we fired the radar. Right, wait one year. <laughs> if you're lucky. Yeah. So ultimately, we moved to control the whole stack. So when we render a PDF, it goes probably from your Swift library to our Objective-C mediator to C++ down to C, and then maybe it ends up rendering a font in uh, FreeType. And then it goes all the way back up. Mm. And we can we control the whole stack. We Some parts are open source in it. A lot of it is closed source. But we understand every bit of the process and we can control it and we can tweak the performance. So moving over to that also made it faster and made it more predictable because, well, we shipped the same version of that for different OS versions. Yeah, and that makes total sense. And I think this is also a kind of important point in general where if you have something that is very, very critical for you, your team, and your and the product that you're building, uh, kind of moving some of the stuff kind of in-house or building it yourself can actually be a great way to kind of control it, like you say, and to understand all of the parts of it. Because sometimes, you know, I see projects that are kind of composed out of so many, many different kind of open source libraries and dependencies and things. And of course, these are really important to use as well, especially if just like how you did in the beginning, you're, you were using Apple's renderer, you know, to kind of bootstrap the whole thing. Uh, but then eventually identifying some of these like really critical parts and kind of taking ownership of them. I think it's, uh, it can be something that really makes a big difference in how you can iterate on something and, and how well you can control it from a performance perspective. Yeah, and ultimately, how fast you can deliver fixes, because that's what everybody cares about. Exactly. All right, so our final question comes from Patrick Smith, and um, he wants to ask you what you kind of got right when it comes to your business model, and if there's anything that you would do differently if you started from scratch today. So if you were to start from scratch today, building a closed source framework or some kind of product like this, uh, would you do something differently? Or do you feel like the way you kind of did it, obviously it went really well for you. So is there something that you kind of would change? So it went really well because a few years back, we changed it from being a, a one-time purchase, basically to being a subscription model. And I know subscriptions are widely discussed in, in the software community as a whole. But if you think about it, what you actually want, you want to use an SDK that's reliable. You want to have, you want to work with a company that's hopefully around for many years because it will take you time to integrate and then you just want to use it. And you also want to get support whenever there is a problem. Yeah. And in the beginning, we had this thing of you purchase it and then you get updates for a certain number of months, usually a year. And then you can basically purchase it again and you probably get a discount. It was, it was kind of like a little left in the open. So there were a lot of issues where people pinged us and basically it's like the, the time was over by maybe a week or two weeks. And then they had this little small problem. Like, are you going to be a d on support and say, oh, sorry, 
your time's up you need to repurchase now or <laughs> do you still want to help yeah. like like we always want to help people and it's very frustrating when you need to wait between you want to help but you also need, need to think about your business and also helping usually means releasing a new version and then their license didn't work anymore so whenever we did perpetuals you always run into this problem that unless you do perpetual with unlimited updates like and this is just like not something that works you see that with the app economy and a lot of apps just disappearing because you have constant cost and if a person only pays you once but then wants constant updates that just doesn't work yeah and eventually we realized that and just changed the business into its subscription as long as you use it you pay for it every year and you get all those updates you get support you get like uh, your complete carefree package and this was easier than than i initially thought like I, I expected more backlash from those people that were like oh but i download software why do i need to pay for it in in in, in years to come but actually businesses very well understood that and liked that because it gave them this guarantee about the price isn't going to change in the in in future years company will still be around it gave us the chance to actually plan and have predictable income. That means you can actually hire people and then make a better product and grow. So there were like so many benefits that I, I wish I would have done this sooner. But I'm also glad that we did it when we did it. And it really worked out well to build a sustainable business. Yeah, yeah, that sounds really, really good. And it's the classic thing where, you know, if you really like something or if you re really rely on it, like in this case where you, you know, you have a lot of customers that really rely on the product that you that you provide them, you want to usually align yourself, you want to align your interests with that kind of uh, provider. So you want to make sure that in, in your case, you want, to, you want to make sure that your team is well staffed and you know you have the resources you need to actually deliver this this good product and i feel the same way whenever you know i have an app that i like that they start switching to subscriptions sure it's kind of you know not so nice to maybe have to have yet another fixed expense but at the same time i am making it more sustainable for them to keep working on the app or keep working on the service and that's what i want i wanted to keep you know iterating on and i wanted to keep having this nice high quality so I think that makes total sense. Yeah, that's it's going to be interesting because we we soon release version 3 of our free app PDF Viewer and we're going to add a pro subscription to it. We had a lot of internal discussions because we have people on the team that are not fans of subscriptions and I completely understand that. But we we approach it more as a you get this amazing app that can do so many things completely for free, but you can subscribe to it and support us and you get a few extra features which is a little bit of a different approach like you get different icons themes you can merge documents you, you get drag and drop it's all most of them are nice to have and not necessarily core features but it wouldn't fly with a one-time purchase because we have continuous costs and we continuously make this up better and we didn't want to do a version two, a version three, like this usual workaround yeah. for that basically a hidden subscription because the old app eventually breaks. Um, we just we, we just go with free and then a, a small subscription that will support us making the app better. And we see how it goes. It's definitely an experiment. 
and I'm very curious uh, once it launches to see how it, how it turns out. Cool. Yeah, that's really exciting. Looking forward to hear the results of that. All right, so now we've reached the end of this episode. So uh, first of all, I want to thank you so much, Peter, for joining me on this episode. It's been super interesting to hear about your development process and the challenges of working on a closed source SDK and all these tips that you've given throughout the episode. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for, for listening to me, even though I don't know so much Swift. Uh, there's, there, there, <laughs> I think there's still a lot that, that we can learn from each other. Yeah, of course. And it's the kind of secret about the show is that it's not so much actually about Swift, right? <laughs> it's more about like kind of programming in general and, you know, just working with software and all the kind of issues that we face, regardless of which language we work on. So it's, uh, that's always very fun to have someone on who maybe, maybe doesn't work so much with Swift, but has kind of a different perspective. So uh, if people now want to find out more about you and about PSPDF Kit, uh, where should they go? We are really good at SEO. So if you manage to type PSPDFKit in Google, you'll find our website. <laughs> nice. Or any of the common misspellings. <laughs> Probably. I think the, the, the easiest yeah. way to, to see what we do is to download PDF Viewer. Um, PDF Viewer by PSPDFKit because there's, there's many out there. Our coolest feature is that we really embraced uh, files app with iOS 11. So you get this interface that allows you to pick all of iCloud and all the, the cloud providers and we only build on top which is unfortunately almost no apps do that yet um, and otherwise I ran a lot on Twitter under Stipeet. That's a good follow. <laughs> We're going to put a link to all of those things like the PDF viewer app and uh, your website and your Twitter and everything in the show notes. And um, you can also find me on Twitter. I am at John Sundell. You can find everything about this show and all the weekly articles, Swift tips and all that good stuff at swiftbysundell.com. Thank you so much to both Instabug and Bitrice for sponsoring this episode. Make sure to check them out. You can also find their links along with all of the other show notes for this episode at swiftbysundell.com slash podcast slash 28. And thank you so much for listening, everybody. And I'll talk to you on the next episode.